This week, uh, actually it wasn't this week, it was uh, probably a couple weeks ago, uh, I was at our, our house church meeting where our family attends and uh, was at our, uh, the home of our house church shepherd. And our kids, uh, the big ones, uh, at least Manny and Elijah, I don't remember if uh, Elise was there, uh, but um, I, she, she had to have been there because uh, <laughs> otherwise she'd been home alone. So we were there and uh, our kids love, at least Manny and Elijah, love going to house church they, uh, for different reasons than maybe... Um, us adults love going, but uh, they love thinking about, uh, yeah, they love sitting with us as we sing songs and thinking about uh, the songs we're going to sing and if maybe uh, we're going to sing a song that they know and if it is, uh, there are 10,000 reasons or Jesus paid it all, they get really excited and they love that part of house church. They love uh, thinking about dessert and wondering what's on the menu in order that they might eat it. Um, but I think most of all, they, they love just being with their aunts and uncles and, and just being loved by them and and being nurtured by them, and being cared for by them. And, and so at this one, uh, this one house church meeting a couple weeks back, Elijah was uh, playing with my keys. And so I said, hey, uh, Elijah, be very careful that you don't lose my car keys, or else uh, we're in big trouble. And I said to him, if you lose my car keys, then we can't go home. And he thought about that for a second, and I could see the gears in his little head beginning to turn, and then they, they reached this point where a light bulb goes off, and his big smile on his face and then he goes then we have to sleep here (laughs) and I said well that's great that you can find the positive in the midst of the negative but that's not what I was saying and we're going through this series about the life that is blessed as we look at the beatitudes that Jesus spoke and we're realizing well here's what he's not saying Jesus is not doing what Elijah is saying He's not saying, you know what, there's some really bad stuff that happened in life, but if we spin it the right way, then uh, we can bring some positive out of the negative. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, with every cloud, there's a silver lining. That's not what he's saying. He's trying to juxtapose the nature of life in the world with nature of life in the kingdom, and he's showing us how different, radically different these two things are and how countercultural the kingdom of heaven really is. We've been seeing that by hearing things like, blessed, not are the rich, not the self-sufficient, not the proud and the arrogant, but the poor in spirit. Blessed are not the ones who celebrate and are loud and are always victorious in this life, but blessed are those who mourn. And then we get to this really weird place in the Beatitudes where Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What does that mean? What do you think of when you, this is really weird stuff because I think, I think that most of us, when we hear the word meek, we think of its, well, we think that meekness is the same thing or very similar to weakness. Blessed are the weak for they will inherit the earth. So I thought, you know, what, what is the, what is the general understanding of uh, our congregation in terms of what does it mean for us to be meek? And so or a person to be me. Because I asked a few people, and this is what uh, some of you said. I consider myself meek, so normally I'm afraid to offend people. So I feel like meek people are afraid of something. Shy, but very smart. Weak and helpless. Humble. Quiet, not aggressive. L-O-L, I think it's a weakness to be meek. Someone who has humility. When I think of meek, I actually think of a meerkat, 
L-O-L-Z. <laughs> but in terms of a person, I think of a humble, subservient person. Kind of feel sorry for them. Ha. Uh, to me, a meek person is someone who displays true humility. A humility that does not think less of oneself, but thinks of oneself less often and strives to put others and their needs first. I think of the Asian girl from Pitch Perfect. Then there's a YouTube link. Do you, do you remember this, uh, the Asian girl from Pitch Perfect, the one with like huge eyes and she talks like this? Do you remember that girl? It, you can, not right now, but you can YouTube it later. That's what this person thinks when they think of a meek person. Uh, another person said, I think of Clark Kent in light of being Cal L. I thought about how much Clark wanted to intervene during the tornado, but how he decided to listen to his father instead. The world is always longing for Superman, and to be meek is not desired, but when you are meek, it takes tremendous strength. I texted them back and I said, hey, uh, you want to preach on Sunday? (laughs) Another person said, being meek may seem like a sign of weakness in a worldly sense, but the biblical view celebrates meekness and calls us to be humble. A meek person isn't weak, but often chooses not to do something or act a certain way. I texted this person, (laughs) just kidding. Uh, Someone who is quiet and humble doesn't find the need to be aggressive. Their humbleness is from them building their patience. I think of someone who is humble to the extreme, who is so kind-hearted that they would try to maintain the peace, even if it means that they have to give up what they want. That person would essentially have to be selfless, so basically someone who is obedient. Um, dot, 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 myself, LOL. Yoon she's a sister from our congregation, I love how she never raises her voice. KC also, calm and gentle all the time. Mellow, LOL. Man, this is a really funny question because uh, several people were laughing out loud as they were texting back. This is funny. Hmm. Someone who is humble and obedient, someone who's willing to serve, has a selfless heart, doesn't put themselves over others. I think of someone that is soft-spoken, reserved, shy, and often humble. They prefer avoiding confrontation so basically we have a picture of what we think meekness looks like the the image that we get is uh someone who's who's usually humble uh obedient uh submissive quiet a little bit tend to be on the shy side not aggressive but where we might disagree is is this a good thing or is it a bad thing is it a weakness or is it something that is built of character today i want to look at matthew chapter 5 verse 5 and see what jesus says because it's a very we got to get it because um, this really is a countercultural thing. Matthew 5, uh, we're going to start in verse 1, and then we're going to end at verse 5, and then we'll talk about what uh, this looks like from a biblical perspective. This is uh, God's word, and it's talking about Jesus. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And it goes on until, well, it goes on and on for quite some time. But this is God's word, the portion that we're going to look at today. 
So it's interesting because Jesus says when he talks about meekness, he says the gift of the meek is that they will inherit the earth. Two more disparate things could not have ever been put together in the minds of Jewish people who are hearing this, both the disciples and then the crowds. So what is Jesus talking about? So at the time that Jesus is writing, you know the context. The Jews have been waiting for the kingdom of God to come. It's been promised for hundreds of years, and they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting. The problem is about 63 years before Jesus came onto the scene, the Roman Empire tackled them and ransacked their city and took control over Palestine, as it had done for much of the known world. And so when Jesus talks about inheriting the earth, they're not thinking about the meek. They're thinking about the powerful, the aggressive, the Roman Empire. They're the ones who inhabit, inherit the earth. And so when Jesus says, let me tell you about who's going to inherit the earth, and he says, blessed are the meek, all of a sudden, they're like, that doesn't sound right. Nothing could be more oxymoronic than that. How in the world do these two things go together? And beginning with the first sermon that Jesus ever preached, and from the third sentence into it, the people began to be disappointed with Jesus. Because the tighter the rule rule of the oppressors got, the more the longing for their Messiah to usher in the kingdom became. And so when John the Baptist and Jesus come preaching the message, here comes the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is near. Then this messianic longing has hit this fever pitch. And Jesus looks like, for all intents and purposes, that he plays the part. He looks the part of a savior. Some of the things that he's doing. So there's a group of people called the zealots who thought that Jesus is going to come in militaristically. He's going to kick but and then he's going to establish the kingdom of heaven right there and it's going to take over the empire there are others kind of like the 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 pharisees and other religious people who thought that the messiah would come by way of miracles and through miracles he would establish the kingdom and so they were waiting only to be disappointed beginning here and then three and a half years later so disappointed were they in their failed messiah they ended up crucifying him on a cross. And it began with a disappointment as to who is it that's going to be part of the kingdom? Who is it that's going to actually inherit the earth? Who is it that's going to be part of the kingdom that rules and reigns forever and ever and ever and ever? And Jesus says, it's not the powerful, it's not the aggressive. He says, it's the meek. What is he talking about? Uh, Three thoughts we're going to talk about today. The first thing is that meekness comes from a right understanding of, of ourselves. Uh, Meekness comes from a right, uh, it begins with a right understanding of ourselves. When, uh, you know, if you ask me and if you describe someone, hey, tell me what that, what that guy is like. You're a new guy at your house church. Tell me what he's like. New guy at my office. Tell me what he's like. I've got a new boss. I've got a new teacher. And I ask, what does he, what does he, what does he look like? What does he act like? And you say, oh, he's a, he's a, he's a rather meek man. Immediately, here's the image that I get. Some of you guys get different images in your mind, but this is what I get is kind of like uh, scrawny, skinny, wireframe glasses, losing a little bit of hair, real quiet, shy, can't look anybody in the eye, no backbone, spineless, always says yes, sir, to his uh, superiors, gets run over by his class. That's what I think of when I think of a, a meek person. I think of a husband who gets abused by his wife. I think of Millhouse from the Simpsons, getting bullied by his friends. That's what I think of when I think of a meek person. I often equate meekness with weakness. This person is a pushover. 
got no spine. They just do whatever people tell them to do. That's what I think often when I think of a meek person. But the interesting thing is that when Jesus talks about these are the people who are part of my kingdom, these are the people who are in, this describes the people of God, this describes a Christian, and ultimately this describes me, Jesus. The third descriptor that he uses, he says, we are a meek people. Could it be that if Jesus is describing himself as meek, that it's actually not talking about a weak person, but it's talking about something else? Could it actually be that instead of dealing with weakness, that meekness has more to do with power than with weakness? Because when you read the Greek word, when you understand the Greek language, three images come up when you, when you talk about a meek person. This definition of the word meek, three things come up. The first is of medicine, is medicine that has power to heal a sick person. The second image is of a wind, a massive, mighty, powerful wind. And the third image is of a horse that is strong enough to and they measure the, 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 the power of a car by the number of horses that could, that could operate this thing. The image in the Greek, when people hear the word meekness, has a whole lot more to do with power than it does with weakness. What does that mean? And what does that look like? I tell you, we have to understand, again, that all of these descriptions, the Beatitudes of the blessed life, it's not talking about this is what you need to do or this is people of the world who are blessed. He's saying, these are my people, people who have been bought by the blood of Christ, people who have put their faith in me, people who have laid down their arms of rebellion and have surrendered to follow the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is a description of those kinds of people. So he's saying, if you're a follower of Christ, then you will be Meek. Here's what that means. It means that meekness has nothing to do with our natural personality. In fact, the only other person in Scripture that was described as a meek person was Moses. And nobody would say that Moses was timid or shy or humble or a pushover. He was groomed to be the prince of Egypt. He stood up to the most powerful man in the world on multiple occasions. There was nothing weak about him. He fought, he argued, he killed an Egyptian, and he buried him in the sand. There's nothing weak about Moses. And yet he was described as being a meek person. Meekness is a spirit-induced and spirit-produced reality, an inner reality that comes when Christ enters our lives. has nothing to do with the fact that, oh, you know what, he's naturally shy, or she doesn't like people, she has social aversion, has nothing to do with meekness. That might have everything to do with shyness, might have everything to do with your personality, but meekness has nothing to do with what you scored on the Myers-Briggs. It has nothing to do with that. It's something that comes as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit within a person's life. And it's actually saying that if you're part of the kingdom, this is the third rung on the ladder. Here's another thing that that means. That it means that you don't wake up one day and say, you know what, I want to be meek. You don't you, it, it, he say you can pray for it, but it's not going to happen this way by saying, Lord, I want to be more, more meek. Saying meekness is a byproduct of understanding two things. One, it, you understand what it means to be poor in spirit. And you understand what it means to mourn over your sin. When you do those two things, 
then the resulting fruit is meekness. So you, you got a six-year-old baby boy here, okay? And this baby boy all of a sudden says, you know what? I want to run. I want to run fast. I want to run fast like Usain Bolt. That doesn't happen. Why not? But not only the fact that a six-year-old, a six-month-old cannot talk, but because in order to run, you need to be able to crawl first. And then you need to be able to walk, and then you need to be able to run, and then you could actually run fast. So being meek is not something that you one day wake up and say, you know what, I want to be a little bit more meek. And this happens when you understand what it is to be poor in spirit, that before God you have nothing to offer to God. You go to the store and you want to buy a, a, a new car. It doesn't matter how much that car costs. You have no, you've got no bank account. You've got no credit cards. You flip out your, your, your pockets and you've got nothing. You can't buy that. You can't have that. You've got nothing. You only, all you have is to beg for the mercy of the person who's got what you want. And that's what it is to be poor in spirit. You come before God and you realize that he has what you want, but you don't have what it takes. And as soon as you realize that you're poor in spirit, you see God rightly, you see yourself rightly, then in light of who God is, you're going to mourn over your brokenness, over your sins, over your failures, over how much you've offended a holy God, and you're going to mourn over your sins. It says, as you do that, then the next step, the thing that happens as a result is that you will begin to be meek. That's what he's saying is going to happen. Yeah, there is this sense in which it's, there's a humility and a a servitude. There's a sense in which that person is, 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 is submissive. But at the, end of, at the end of it all, you begin to realize that if we genuinely understand the gospel, which is what it takes to be poor in spirit and to mourn over your sins, if you, if you really get it, can I tell you something? There, is no, there are no proud people in the kingdom of heaven. If pride continues to show up in our lives, then it could be that either we've not gotten the gospel or we have forgotten the gospel. Because you cannot genuinely understand the gospel of God and think that we have any room to be prideful or to boast. The only thing Hey, get this? The only thing that you and I contributed to our salvation was the sin that caused Jesus to die. That's all we contributed to the gospel. That's all we contributed to our salvation. And if we think because I'm morally upright, because I'm going to missions, because I teach this class, because I share the gospel with this many people, that we have something to offer to God, then maybe we've forgotten what it is to be poor in spirit what it is to mourn over our sin. See, understanding the gospel is not about, uh, like, like somebody said, it's not about us thinking lowly of ourselves, but it's about seeing ourselves properly in light of who we are. It's not about making ourselves smaller and smaller in order that we might feel humble. It's about standing as tall as we can before the greatness of God and realizing how pitiful our supposed greatness really is. And that's humility, and that's mourning over our sin, and that's understanding a proper view of ourselves is going to lead us to be poor in spirit, is going to lead us to mourn, and ultimately, the fruit of that kind of a life is that there's going to be a meekness born within our hearts. 
says, I don't have anything to boast. Yeah, what I thought was my right, I really, there's, there's nothing that I have to cling to. There's nothing I have to cling to. And so I surrender all that I am before God in utter and desperate humility. See, being meek is a byproduct of having a right understanding of ourselves. And the more we understand that, the resulting, right, the result of that is that we, we realize there's nothing to be proud about. And meekness begins to come out of our hearts as a result. See, we can, we can fake meekness for a while. It's in the same way that you could fight against the laws of gravity for a while. And if you catch them at the right moment, you might think, okay, they're, they're really being meek. So like Michael Jordan, right, probably one of the greatest, uh, basketball, the greatest basketball player, one of the best jumpers in all of the world. Uh, he, he came up with this video called uh, Come Fly With Me. And somebody asked him, Michael, do you really believe that you can fly? <laughs> he said, uh, for a second, I believe that I can fly. For a second, I believe I'm flying. And maybe if you, if, you, if you catch a picture of Michael Jordan in the air, it looks like he's flying. For that second, it looks like it. He can fake and fight the laws of gravity, but within a second, he's going to come back down to the earth. Uh, you can fight against the laws of gravity. You throw a ball up in the air and going upwards, it looks like it's breaking the laws of gravity, but in time, it's going to come back down. You can fake meekness, but in time, our true colors are going to show. And if we're not a child of God, then the spirit of meekness is not going to pervade throughout our lives. Okay, the first thing that we understand, the first thing about meekness is that it comes from having a right understanding of ourselves. The second thing that we see is that meekness is expressed in our relationships. Okay, meekness is expressed, it's shown, it's demonstrated in our relationships. So with these first two beatitudes and all that we're, we're talking about here, it, it's not hard for us to say, you know what? I'm poor in spirit. To come to that realization, right? When you come face to face with God, it's not hard for us to realize that. Nor is it difficult for us to mourn over our sins. But with this third beatitude, blessed are the meek. You only know that you're meek when you enter into a relationship with other people. That's when meekness is really put to the test. Can I tell you, this is why anyone who says, yeah, you know what, I am a, follower of Jesus Christ. I love him, but I'm not affiliated with a church. I don't worship at a church. I don't go to a church. I don't attend a church. I watch church on TV because I like the preacher better. I like the music better there. A person will never understand the fullness of the Christian life if they're not in relationship with people. Because I tell you what, if you're living on an island somewhere, like Castaway, like Tom Hanks on an island, and it's just you and your volleyball, you can be the meekest person in the world. But as soon as you get into a relationship with other people, you begin to realize, oh my gosh, I'm really a whole lot more prideful than I thought I was. And I'm not really humble, and I don't really submit myself to other people. It's why house church is so important. It's why relationship is so important. Why you need to get into these places, because unless you do, you're never going to be shaped and formed into the likeness and image of Christ because we'll always be misguided, because we're always going to be thinking we're better than we are, because it's never put to the test. So you and I can say, yeah, you know what? I'm so, uh, I'm so, I have nothing to give to God. I'm such a dirty sinner. I'm so poor in my spirit. I've, all I do to contribute to the work of God is, is, is sin. I, I'm so bad. 
We can say that, but how do we respond when someone else says that to you? Uh, you can believe that about yourself and you can confess that to, you, to, to God and you can tell that to other people. But how do you respond when someone listening to you says, yeah, you know what, you're right. You are an awful sinner. You're right. You are really prideful. You know what? You, re- you really don't contribute anything to the kingdom of God. And all you do is sin, sin, sin. You're, you're absolutely right. How do you respond when someone says that to you? Because this, how we respond, is what meekness is really about. The world says, right? If people of the world are around you, they're like, ooh. You hear what he said about you? What are you going to do? What are you going to say? Don't, let, don't take that. Don't take that from him. Don't take that from her. You need to speak up. You need to say something about that. You need to defend yourself. How do you respond when people say about you the very thing that you know to be true about yourself? You need to defend yourself? Because really what they're saying is nothing that you don't already know and nothing that you haven't already confessed. But when you get into relationships with other people, you begin to realize, man, there's a whole lot more self that needs to be crucified in my life. The people of the world say, you got to fight. you got to stand up for yourself. What are you going to do? What are you going to say? You've got rights. You need to defend them. But the person who understands themselves properly in view of God, in light of the gospel, their response is, you know what? They're only reinforcing what I already know to be true about myself. That I am these things. And they're absolutely and utterly right. What are we doing? We're taking the power that we have to defend ourselves and we're restraining that. Because what's going to happen? What's going to happen if we stand up for ourselves and we begin to fight for ourselves? We begin to get defensive and then we throw it back on them and they throw it back on us and they throw it back. This is what the people of the world do. But Jesus is saying kingdom culture is different. Do you see? The ethic of the kingdom is different. We don't do that. We don't fight the way that the world does. We don't need to defend ourselves. If you really know the gospel, you're not going to need to do that. You're not going to need to fight for yourself. You're not going to need to defend yourself and say, you know what? Well, I'm better than you at least. We don't do that. This is hard. And it's only possible if the Spirit of God has regenerated us and is living within our hearts. It is impossible to, again, you can fake it for a little bit, but gravity is going to bring you back down. Uh, You can fake it for a little bit, but at the end of the day, who we are is really going to come through. So remember, think about this. Think about this. You've got medicine. What happens when you let the power of medicine go unleashed? Someone overdoses on medicine, they die. You take wind. What happens when that gets unleashed? It's a tornado. Lives are destroyed. You've got a horse. What do you do? You let it go wild. It kills all these people. But you harness the power of medicine and you bring healing. You harness the power of the wind. It becomes a gentle breeze that brings calm and soothing. You harness the power of a horse and they're used for good. You know, the wild horses never win races. will never win the Kentucky Derby. They need to be harnessed and they need to be restrained. It doesn't do much good when we feel the need always to fight for our rights and to defend ourselves and to stand up for ourselves, that's not kingdom ethic. Jesus says, blessed are the meek who take the power that is within them 
and they restrain it for the purposes of a greater good. I know some of you are saying, that's ridiculous. It is. <laughs> because we're so used to thinking the ways of the world. In our litigation-rich society, every, every, you can't drive on a highway in Orlando without seeing a sign for some lawyer that says, you've been done wrong, I'm going to make you right. I'm going to make you hundreds of thousands of dollars. Spill a cup of McDonald's coffee on you. And I, there's a backstory to it. And I feel sorry for that, that lady and her family. They got, they got ripped up in the media. But whatever you need, there's a lawyer for it. Whatever, you got to stand up. You got to fight for your rights. No, this is hard. This is very difficult. And it, in fact, it is impossible unless we've been regenerated and we are living as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. You, you, you get into an argument with your spouse and you want to bring up. Right? Some people say, I can't argue with her. I can't argue with him. He's getting hysterical. Right? What's worse than getting hysterical is when you get historical and you start bringing up stuff from the past. You know what? 15 years ago, you know what you did? 10 years ago, last week, and bring up all this stuff. Meekness. Does at some point... The only way for this to end is if somebody absorbs it and doesn't fight back. That's the only way it happens. The last thing that we see then is that the reward, okay, the reward motivates us to continue in our meekness. Very difficult, very difficult us to lay down our rights, to restrain our power, to take our power and to put it in control in order that a better purpose could prevail. This week, um, Olive and I were watching a movie called The Butler. Uh, it's about this, uh, this African-American man during the time of uh, right before, during, and after the Civil Rights Movement, African-American butler who makes it into the White House and begins serving all of these presidents from Lyndon Baines Johnson, the John F. Kennedy, the Nixon, all these other folks. And his son grows up in the midst of segregation and racism and all of these things that are causing the stuff in, in Baltimore to, to rise to the surface, causing all this stuff in Ferguson to happen. And it's just telling that story of the years of oppression and of decades-old pain that has been inflicted upon uh, our African-American brothers and sisters. And it's retelling that story... And his son says, I want to do something about this. And he goes off to college and he, he finds about these freedom riders and, and they just go to different places and they nonviolently protest against the injustices in our culture and our society. And there's this uh, part in, in, in the movie where a, a group of maybe eight or ten of them go into this diner which is segregated. Uh, the blacks in one side and the whites in the other side. That's how they labeled in those days. Right? They colored people, non-colored people. Um, and so the, the, the table, kind of like where the, where the, the, what would be a bar and another restaurant in a diner uh, with the stools was reserved for the white people. And so these colored people sat down at, at those places and they taught themselves and they trained themselves and they said, you know what, we're going to just stand our ground. And so they start getting stares from the white patrons in the restaurant. People start looking at them and talking about them and and all of a sudden, they start getting aggressive. People start leaving, saying, we're not going to eat in this place where the colored people sit in, in these prime seats. 
people in the diner, workers are saying, you don't deserve to sit here. They start yelling at them. They start screaming at them. They start mocking them. They start spitting at them. They start spitting on their food and then they start kicking them and beating them and punching them. And yet these people trained themselves. They said, don't fight back. Don't fight back. Don't fight back. And so beaten and bruised, they go until finally they're kicked out and taken away by the police and thrown into jail. You think at some point that you've got to ask yourself a question. Is it worth it for that? For us to go through that? I mean, some of the people that are beating us up, we could have beaten them up. They had every power in them, all the strength in them to fight back and to attack and to kill these people who are oppressing them. But they restrained their strength. They kept it under control so that a higher purpose could prevail. You think at some point, the African Americans who fought for our rights, many of us, and the civil rights of so many, wondered, is it worth it? Is it worth it for us to be meek? Well, we could just, we could just unleash fury on these people. But they thought to themselves, what good would that do? Because at the end of the day, it was people like Martin Luther King Jr. who painted a picture of the reward. And he said, I have a dream. I have a dream that one day a better future is going to be for my children. And the way that it's going to happen is not by me fighting back. But it's about me and others living meekly in order that justice might roll like the rivers. Of course they wondered, is it worth it? Especially, I'm sure his family wondered if it was worth it when Martin Luther King Jr. was killed in 1963. I'm sure they wondered if it was worth it. But there was a reward that they were looking ahead to when their children would not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character where one day people from all different backgrounds could sit at a table and they would sing the song of the redeemed. They saw that picture in mind. You see, when we have a picture of our reward, it motivates us to continue on even when it seems uncomfortable and difficult and even painful to do so. Every parent knows that sometimes reward can be a great motivator for a child. One of the first times that our daughter Manny was a flower girl in a wedding, uh, she was very shy and didn't like being separated from her mom, Olivia. And so the, the, one of the early weddings that she, she was a flower girl for, uh, we were, everyone was wondering, is she going to actually make it down the aisle? And so what Olivia decided, what other parents have decided in the past, was that at the end of the long aisle, her daddy would be there with a lollipop waiting for her. That Manny, daddy's got a lollipop. Go get it from him. And so Manny, with her eyes fixed upon her reward, her daddy, I'm just kidding, her lollipop, she made it all the way down the aisle only to realize that I had forgotten the lollipop and put it somewhere else. But the fact remains that the motivation of reward often keeps us going when it seems like we can't go any longer, can't go any further. What is a reward that is promised to the meek? 
Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The inheritance of the earth is not for the people who are dominating the headlines right now. The inheritance of the earth is not for ISIS, it's not for the Muslims, it's not for the terrorists, it's not for people like that. But blessed are the meek, your reward is coming. Your inheritance is coming. You will inherit the earth. An inheritance presupposes several things. That one, you're part of the family. That two, someone you love had to die in order for you to gain this reward. What does it mean that we will inherit the earth? Such a powerful thing. An amazing thing. I remember watching this TV show years, years ago. It was about um, this group of three people who lived together, and, and they were all friends. And one of them, uh, it was a girl named Janet, and she owned the flower shop. And one day, one of her faithful customers, very rich old man, passed away. And she got a notice saying that she was included in the will, in the inheritance. And so they invited her to come to this lawyer's office. And so she came with her friend Jack. And the whole time they're thinking, you know, what could he give to you? What could he possibly give to you? And Janet's like, he owned a bank. Like, oh my gosh, a bank would be nice. And so excited they go to the office. And they're saying, uh, the lawyer is reading the will. And he says, to my wife, the house to my son and daughter, the car, and then says, to Janet Wood. And then her friend Jack yells, this is it! Because he's so excited to hear about what the inheritance will be. Turns out, in that case, it was just a little vase that for some reason he wanted to give to her. But there's a certain sense of longing, of excitement, when we know that we are heirs Heirs to someone who is extremely rich and is giving us something of great value. Because we will inherit the earth. That one day, all the wicked who seem to be taking over the earth are going to be sucked up in a giant vacuum cleaner and they will be no more. And the ones who are left are the ones of the kingdom who have laid down their devotion and surrendered their hearts laid down their rights, letting go of their pride and said, I surrender to you. This is the group of people to whom the inheritance will come. And he says, this is coming to you. In this life, it's true that in the heavens and on the earth, we live in a battlefield, a battleground, fighting for the glory of God, laboring and sweating and bleeding with everything that we have in order that none would be disqualified from the prize. But in the new heavens and the new earth, this world that we fight and labor through, there will be no fighting, there will be no laboring, there will be no more battling because the battle will have been decided. It has been decided. There will be no more need to fight and it will just become an eternal playground filled with the joy of the Lord and the worship of the Lord God. And that inheritance will be given to those who humbly and meekly bow the knee before Jesus. And say, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever.
And the inheritance comes because someone that we love had to die. Someone in the family had to die. Could it be any more fitting that the one who would die was the one who self-descriptively spoke of himself in Matthew eleven twenty-eight: Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, for I am humble and meek. The only other person in the Bible who was described as meek besides Moses was Jesus. He was the most powerful man in the world. At the spoken word, demons would flee. Demons that the strongest people could not cast out. He was the one who turned water into wine, who opened the eyes of the blind. There was no one like him, equal in power, equal in glory. He was the one before whom the the, the Pharisees would shake and tremble because they could do nothing to trap him. And he was the one who could have called down tens of thousands of angels as he walked on the road to Calvary, instead dying alone on a cross. This is meekness par excellence, where he who was powerful beyond measure withheld his power for a greater purpose. It was he of whom it was spoken by the prophet Isaiah as a lamb before her shearers is silent. So too he did not open his mouth. Silent as he stood accused. Beaten, mocked and scorned. Bowing to the father's will. He took the crown of thorns. Why? said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. This cup of meekness that would lead me to drink the wrath of God, the wrath of the Father. But he said, yet not my will, but yours be done. Why? It tells us in the book of Hebrews that he, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. Because he saw his reward. And he saw the fruit of his labor. He saw you and he saw me. He saw the glory of the Father. And because of the greater will and the greater purpose of God, he laid down his life in utter meekness and in humility. If Jesus demonstrated his power at the cross, it would have been the greatest demonstration of power up to that point in time that the world has ever known. But you and I would have never been saved. But he withheld that power to himself, even to the point of death. So that the reward would be your salvation and it would be mine as well. That's why Jesus can point to his own life and say to you and me, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If Jesus did not fight back for you and for me, What kind of injustice would warrant us to fight back and to fight for our own rights? If we understand this and if we live in its power and its freedom and its glory and its victory, then this will change our marriages. 
This will change the way that we parent. This will change the way that we relate to our friends. This will change everything about our lives. We can think that we get the gospel, but it's when we come into relationship with other people that we begin to realize whether or not we really get it or not. And so as we think about the word of God and as we think about the call of God in our lives, can we take a moment to just pray to the Lord? Maybe the only thing that you need to pray right now is just thinking about Jesus and thinking about him. Maybe you want to turn to Isaiah 53 and read about the suffering servant. Read about the meek one who wasn't weak by any stretch, but he was powerful beyond measure. But he laid down his power in order that we might have life. Maybe the Lord would be calling you to just reflect and to meditate upon the beautiful one and what he's done for us at Calvary. Maybe for others, we want to repent over how we've been fighting for our rights instead of letting go of my pride, instead of laying down all my rights, instead of bringing a sacrifice of love and of meekness, forgetting who we were in Christ. We fought for our own rights to think that we needed to fight on our own for something that Christ has already given to us, an identity. Those who know the gospel live with a humility, a confident humility. Live with confidence knowing that we're the beloved of God. A humble confidence. Our lives should be marked by that. That we were so messed up that Jesus came to die we're so securely loved that he willingly gave his life for you and for me just pray to the Lord God and let's ask him Lord would you touch my heart would you speak to me would you change me help me to know poverty of spirit help me to mourn over my sin that I might become meek in order that a greater good the purpose of God the will of God may be done through my life let's uh, take a moment to pray uh, like that to the Lord just quietly reflecting, meditating, surrendering. Let's pray to the Lord God for a couple moments. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for redefining for us what meekness is. It's really not meek, it's not weak at all. In fact, it's one of the most powerful and beautiful things we could ever know. And when the world sees it, they see something so powerful. They see meekness, something so amazing that if somehow 
everyone the world over could practice meekness, the world would be completely different. Lord, may it begin with us, those who confess that we know you, the meek one. Lord, our knowing you lead to us becoming meek as well. Thank you so much. We need you, Lord God. We need you, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.